Well, good morning. It's been a while since I've been able to be up here and uh, present the message, and I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, but a little background first. Uh, Nick, how long have we been meeting on Tuesdays? Two and a half years? 16, maybe. So, so maybe three years. Four? <laughs> I'm really old. Not like Nick. Even older. Um, we have a small group that meets on Tuesday evenings. You've probably heard this story before, but one day I was standing just on the other side of those doors talking to someone, and I heard someone talking behind me to someone else. And I listened in. I listened in because it was Grace, and she was saying this. Nick and I have this ministry to kids and young adults who are gamers. And we really try to present the truths of the gospel. And it seems like we use the same words, but we don't communicate with each other. And so I turned around and I whispered in Grace's ear and said, I can tell you why that happens and teach you how to talk to each other. But it's not good just to do it one-on-one. We need a small group. So if you can find some other people who have a similar interest, we can start a small group and, and we'll walk through that. I assumed that was the end of the issue, that, you know, she'd go around for the next few weeks, try to find somebody, and there wouldn't be too much interest And I'd be off the hook. But within about five minutes, she came back with a handful of people and said, we're ready. I thought, well, thank thank God for that. Because it means this generation wants to reach their peers. And we've been engaged in that conversation ever since. And we'll continue to be engaged in that conversation for as long as there's interest. Um, Why do I tell you that? It's because having that mindset has led me to where we are this morning. And uh, having talked with Alex about it and uh, having a, a common interest in this sort of thing and also a perspective about what plays well in our culture um, has led us to this place. And this short series, it's a two-part series. I'll present part one today. Alex will present part two next week. But the title of it is Love in a Graceless Age. In 1989, I know some of you weren't even alive then. But in 1989, <laughs> go ahead, raise your hands. It's okay, Alex. <laughs> Don Henley released an album titled The End of the Innocence. On that album was a track titled The Heart of the Matter. The song reveals the emotional turmoil of a person who is trying to make sense out of his thoughts and feelings after a relationship has broken up. The song is introspective, and in it, The main character is trying to reconcile his feelings and the affection that he has for the person who broke up with him. Those affections and feelings about what happened create some stress for him. So in wrestling through his emotions, he makes some profound observations and he asks some very poignant rhetorical questions, observations and questions that reveal his and our cultural setting. He says, uh, among those observations and questions, these times are so uncertain. There's a yearning undefined and people filled with rage. We all need a little tenderness 
But how can love survive in such a graceless age? He goes on to make some assumptions. The trust and self-assurance that lead to happiness, they're the very things we kill, I guess. So it seems to me that since 1989, in American culture, self-assurance has given way to a spirit of victimhood. And trust has given way to blame. As victimhood and blame have become the bases of our cultural identity, rage has risen and given birth to anger, anger to hatred, hatred to violence, until today in 2020, our culture is overshadowed by violence against our own selves. Suicide is on the rise. Uh, And violence against one another. We're hearing more and more about mass shootings in the news. It seems that we have killed trust and self-assurance. We've sacrificed self-assurance on the altar of victimhood. And we have sacrificed trust on the altar of offense. It seems we can no longer be happy unless we have someone to blame for our misery. And we are not content with just fixing blame. We have developed a need for vengeance. And not just as a culture, but even those calling themselves Christians seem to have adopted the very same mindset of victimhood, blame, and vengeance. For American culture, I think Henley's question is a valid one. How can love survive in such a graceless age? But for us, the people of God's kingdom, the questions must be different. We are not tasked with unraveling the causes of our broken hearts. We are tasked with delivering a message that can restore hope to the brokenhearted. Romans 12.2 commands us, do not be conformed to this world. That is, we are not to be pressed into the mold, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are to break out of the world's mold. We are not to be uh, conformed, but transformed. We are to have renewed minds that think differently from the way the world thinks. We are to use that transformed thinking to bring hope, the hope of the gospel, to those around us who are broken. How can love survive in such a graceless age? No. Wrong question. The questions for us carry far greater weight than that. The survival of broken people depends on us breaking out of the mold of the world, the mold that we are in, and learning how to lovingly deliver the message of hope that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The questions for us are twofold. Not how can love survive in such a graceless age, but who have we become? And when it comes to loving the lost, how do we break out of the world's mold and once again become the messengers of God? We need to pray together about this. So if you would, please stand with me in God's presence as we seek to be taught by him. Holy Spirit, we need a new understanding. We need to see ourselves aright. We need you to guide us through this message. Father, I ask you by your spirit, please, 
teach us, guide us, reveal to us what is inside of us. Holy Spirit, again, you are the one who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. My sense is that we need some of that conviction. So guide us. And not in a condemning way, but in a way that gives rise to new motivation, to renewed sense of urgency, and to lives dedicated to carrying the gospel to the lost and loving them for Christ's sake. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things, Father. Please give them to us for the sake of your name in the world and for the establishing of your kingdom in the hearts and minds of men, women, and children that Jesus died to save because you gave your son. Amen. Love in a Graceless Age. As I said, this is the first of two installments uh, in a series that Pastor Alex and I will be presenting today and next week. Today, I have the privilege of presenting part of the series, and today we will be exploring our current condition, and we will paint a vision, because it's not good just to stay stuck in our current condition. We will paint a vision for transformation. I'm really excited about this. Uh, Once I've done that today, however, Pastor Alex will have the honor next week to fill in the details of what transformation is might look like and where it comes from. But, but before we go any further, we really need to identify the different molds that we may have been pressed into, especially when it comes to grace. You see the title is Love in a Graceless Age. So love is the main topic. But we express it in the settings of grace. And so we need to understand grace and what it is. So the question arises from all of this, who have we, the church of Jesus Christ, become? Especially in expressions and understandings of grace. Well, the first mold we have to get broken free from is the mold of the world. The world and that mold are the ones we've been talking about. The one in which in human relationships, anger, rage, frustration, blame, blame setting, and vengeance. Those are the, those are the things that the world is coming to. Um, Christians also, when we talk about grace, we not just, we don't only need to avoid the world's mold, we need to also avoid the theological mold. There is a mold, it's a thing that tries to shape us. This mold and the theological aspect is the perspective that Christians tend to have when we talk about grace. See, when we talk about grace, we tend to focus on God's grace that saves us. And that's an important part. Don't get me wrong. That's ultimately where we're going. We are going to bring the message of that grace to the world. But we can't just focus on that grace that saves us that allows us to be transformed into the image of Christ. We can't just focus on that grace that God pours out from heaven. Instead, what I want us to do, um, I want us to think of grace as a quality. The quality of the interactions we have with people who are not like us. People who don't think like us. So grace 
is the quality of those interactions. Specifically, it's how we respond to people who are different from us. The words that are translated into the idea of grace in both the Old and New Testament, uh, those words are also translated or sometimes defined as acceptance. Kindness, favor, joy, happiness, compassion, gladness. Grace about acceptance. Isn't that what we hear from the world nowadays? That, I mean, that's like one of the big things out there, right? We have to be tolerant. And if we have any standards, we are accused of being intolerant. But grace is tolerant. So we need to somehow figure out how to leave that theological mold and restructure our expressions of truth. So when we talk to people, do we exhibit grace or something else? What about when we talk about people? Or this, what about when we talk with other Christians about lost people? Do we carry grace into those conversations? Does our conversation with one another, when we're talking about lost people, do our conversations then reflect acceptance, kindness, favor, joy, compassion? Are they accepted by us or by the God we serve? What about those conversations? We've all had them. You see, if lost people heard us talking about them, just between ourselves, would they think that the God we serve loves them? That the God we serve has compassion for them? For the things they struggle with? For the things they're enduring? Would they think that the God we claim to serve accepts them? That he acts kindly toward them? That he makes them glad? If you think that's the case, then I challenge you to go to almost any news site on the Internet. Just go to any news site and choose a headline, uh, something about just almost any social topic out there. Politics, race gender identity, reproductive rights, you name it, choose a story. Choose a story about one of those things and go straight to the bottom of the page. You don't even have to read the article. Go straight to the comments. See what is being said. See how it's being said. Notice how those who name the name of Jesus Christ refer to those that they disagree with. And then answer the question. And leave off the part about if they heard us talking. They already hear us talking. So do they think that we believe in a God that loves them, is compassionate toward them, favors them, cares about them, cares to bring them happiness or to make them glad? To extend grace to them. <clears throat> I can tell you what they believe because they say it nice and loud. They believe we hate them and the God we serve hates them as well. They believe we think God hates them. They think we are narrow-minded, backward, judgmental, critical, unloving, cruel, uncaring, discompassionate, unkind, racist, misogynist. If you think I'm wrong, ask yourself about the conversations you have with other people about things like gun ownership, immigration laws and policies, abortion, sexual preference, 
Gender identity, politics, art, billionaires, impeachment, racial tensions, violence, drug use or abuse, human trafficking, health care, college tuition. Should I go on? Labor unions, zoning laws, property rights, legalization of marijuana, marriage, child rearing. More? Okay, no more. You get it, though. In America, we do not have much tolerance for people on the other side of those issues. And the same is true in the church. We don't have much tolerance for people on the other side of those issues. Right about now, somebody's asking, well, how much sin do we tolerate? Wrong question. We already know we don't. I'm talking about how do we relate to people? How do we extend God's grace to people? See, rather than seeing broken people, we are trained by the world and we practice seeing legalistically and with spiritual pride. Having come to believe that our judgments are right, and we have abandoned the admonition to seek justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with our God. We're proud. We're not humble. We do not see souls for whom Christ died. We do not see the lost that God loved so much that he sent his only son, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We have trained ourselves to see God's enemies, not God's lost children. We see adversaries to be conquered, an enemy to be routed, threats to our comfortable way of life. That is who we have become. That is the world's mold into which we have been pressed. Is there hope that we might be restored to our original purpose? Is there hope for the commission Jesus gave us to carry the gospel? Is there any chance that we might return to being Jesus followers who bring hope to all people. Let me give you a vision for that kind of future and a pathway toward life. Jesus addressed, by the way, all of the problems that I just listed in one exchange. And he provided a solution to all of those problems in that same short exchange. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. We call it the woman caught in adultery. We don't call it the scribes and Pharisees caught in hypocrisy, do we? Of course not. Because... They had to be right, right? I mean, they got the law on their side and Moses. So Jesus addressed all of these things in that one interchange. In this brief encounter, and it's brief. It took Amanda, what, two, three minutes to read through it. It's not a long encounter. In this brief encounter, Jesus addressed a whole host of issues. Misogyny. She was a woman. But where was the adulterous man? Gun control and violence. What? Guns hadn't even been invented. <clears throat> hey, what about the rocks? Self-righteousness. He among you who is without sin. What about gossip and slander? 
We didn't even talk about that one, but Jesus did. He wrote on the ground instead of engaging in gossip and slander. Idolatry. Moses commanded in the law. And we hold that up instead of live by it. He addressed shame, hopelessness, poverty, divorce, and remarriage, adultery, prostitution, social injustice, the distribution of wealth, social order issues, pride, arrogance, self-esteem, what we would call today echo chambers. And we live in those echo chambers every time we talk to someone who agrees with us and can voice the same noise back to us. Yes, take a look at that passage throughout the week and ask God to show you, did Jesus really face all of those issues in that short encounter? Yeah. Even issues we think only exist in the 21st century. He addressed them all. Well, look at this passage with me again. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. And we're going to go through this passage again and see 18 different expressions of gracious human interaction. Jesus displayed 18 different acts of grace in this short encounter. And I'll list them all for you. So here we are. John chapter 8. You can read it up there. I can't. Unless I turn around, but I'm not going to. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. This is an interesting thing. If we are to take the uh, placement of this event the way it appears between John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, verse 12, um, we would have to say this, that Jesus is in the temple in the court of women. The court of the women. That's an interesting thing. Because the next thing that was going to happen was the Feast of Tabernacles. If you're following the book of John and you get to this point, that's what's going on. He's in the court of the women about to engage in the Feast of Tabernacles. And the lighting of the lights. That's the place where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And it was closely related to this. So uh, here's what happened. Jesus took up a place where women could hear him teaching. That's an act of grace. That was very unorthodox for a teacher to teach women. This is an act of grace. He's actually elevating women. Second, this was no private altercation. If we read in the next verses, the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. This was no private altercation or interaction. The scribes and Pharisees chose a very public place. That was not very gracious of them. They chose a very public place in which to confront Jesus and this woman and all of the onlookers. They came looking for a point on which to make accusations. That is not gracious. So what this did was reveal their disregard. Well, what they hoped to do was reveal a disregard for the law in Jesus. For they came up and said, Moses commands us in the law. What do you say? The the scribes and Pharisees, this is point three. um, Jesus had respect for the law and he had respect for individuals' privacy. That was his act of grace. Toward this woman 
and actually we'll see toward the Pharisees. So the third act of grace in human interactions. The scribes and Pharisees displayed no grace toward the woman, toward the public, toward Jesus, or the fact that he was engaging a large crowd. They interrupted class time. Very rude. They simply burst in and commandeered the whole setting. Very rude. But Jesus allowed it. An act of grace on his part. He was at least allowing them to have their say. Very gracious thing to do. The fourth act of grace. The scribes and Pharisees displayed absolutely no regard for the law in that they did not bring the man that she had been committing adultery in with them also to face judgment. For Exodus 20:14, which is one of the ten, command, ten Commandments, says this, You will not commit adultery. But Leviticus 20, verse 10 says, When it prescribes a penalty for adultery, it says this, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So they really had no regard for the law. Okay, you might be saying, wait a minute, that says with another man's wife. How do we know she was another man's wife? Maybe she wasn't married. Listen. She could not be committing adultery if she weren't married. All right? It would be his adultery. But it's hers they're questioning and calling into. So they disrespected the law and Moses. And Jesus did not call them down on it. A lot of times we feel like we need to call people down on their sin, especially the lost. We just need to point out that, you know what? This is sinful. God doesn't like it, and you just got to change. Turn or burn. That's it, right? The fifth way Jesus displayed grace in his interpersonal interactions. Matters of the law, that is, whether a person was guilty of breaking the law, matters of the law were to be confirmed on the testimony of two or three witnesses, not publicly, not in the temple. Disregard for the law and tradition is what was going on there. Jesus could have railed and accused, but he didn't. He allowed them to go on and express themselves. That's an act of grace. Now, I think we're right to say he was also allowing them to heap guilt upon guilt for themselves. As we're about to see, that also could have been considered an act of grace. So let's see what happens next. If we go back to John chapter 8, and we start looking... At verse 6, they were saying this, what do you say? Moses says, what do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. And when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. The sixth way that Jesus exhibited grace in this interaction. Jesus wrote in the dirt. This is an act of incredible grace. I mean, we generally look at it and go like, what was he writing? Because that's where our interest goes, right? What was he writing? And there's all kind of conjecture about what it might be. But my personal perspective on this is, if it were important what he was writing, it would say so. But it doesn't. So let it go. Instead, remember this. 
that as the Messiah, that is, as the second person of the Godhead, as God the Son in human flesh, Jesus is the future judge of all the earth with holiness and authority to condemn sin and power to execute judgment. The act of writing in the dirt served to distract him from what was going on right before him. That he refused to accept the accusation is evidence from the context, likewise. That he refused to consider the guilt and hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. That is grace. That is acting with acceptance and mercy. Hmm. Seventh act of grace. Jesus stood up to address the scribes and Pharisees. He displayed for them respect for their human dignity. In spite of who these guys were, he stood up to address them. He was the teacher. He had been sitting. Verse 1 and 2. He had been sitting. But he stooped on the ground to ignore the immediacy of their sin, and he stood up to face them with dignity and respect as human beings, even in the face of glaring sin on their part. That is an act of grace. Do we do that when we confront the lost? Do we look them in the eye and confront them as human beings made in the image of God and display to them the dignity and respect that they deserve simply because they're made in the image of God? Or do we only look to their sin or what we consider to be their sin? The eighth expression of grace. He did not confront them with their own sin directly, but he invited them to explore their own consciences. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Was this an invitation to carry out their murderous intent? No. Because he recognized there was no one who met that requirement. So what Jesus did in his ninth expression of grace, he gave the scribes and Pharisees the opportunity to reflect on their own sin. Why? Because in the very next verse it says this. After, immediately after, let him who is without sin, he's, he did this. He stooped down again to write in the dirt some more. It says right in verse 8. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, what he had said, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. So he displayed and gave them this opportunity to consider and reflect on their own sin. For again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. The tenth way Jesus demonstrated grace in this interaction. He could have immediately condemned the scribes and Pharisees. But instead, he extended grace necessary to give them time to reflect. And to agree with God about their own guilt. This is the grace. He offered them an opportunity to identify their own sin and to make confession. God, I agree with you. And I say this. As they stood there with stones in their hand, anxious for the moment he gave them the authorization to throw them at this woman, when he knelt down and wrote on the ground again what you began to see 
was men changing their mind. And what you began to hear was the thud of stones hitting the ground. And every thud of a stone hitting the ground was another confession of guilt. When does that happen in our interactions with people? When do we give them that space? Don't we confront them and get retaliation in response? Hardly ever broken hearts because we act without grace. Eleven, he was left alone in the court with the woman. Now, we got to recognize this doesn't mean that suddenly this gigantic court of women emptied out because every single person there recognized their sin and left. Now, they may have recognized their sin, but what was important was the scribes and the Pharisees, from the oldest to the youngest, all left. Jesus standing there, stooping down, actually, with this woman, who at this time is probably on her knees, just cowering in fear of the first stone hitting her. He's there, near. But what does he do? He straightens up again. And he addresses her the same way he addressed the scribes and Pharisees, with dignity, with respect. Jesus displayed grace toward the woman. Not just displaying that dignity and respect, but also by not shaming her. We understand shaming today. At least some of us do. Actually, in his 12th act of gracious behavior, he publicly accepted her. For he raised her. Thirteenth, he displayed grace by not looking down on her, but by treating her with dignity and respect, befitting a person made in the image of God. He didn't just have this human interaction. He recognized she is a child of Adam. He called her woman, not adulteress, not scum, not sinner. Woman. As though she were Eve herself. What? Yeah. As though she were Eve herself. For God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female. Man and woman. Woman. Where are your accusers? Not scum, not adulterous, woman, as though she were one of the two created. Verse 10, straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you better? A better translation. Did no one judge you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn. That is, that is the best translation here. I do not condemn you. I do not declare you guilty either. Go. From now on, sin no more. <clears throat> Jesus displayed grace a 14th time when he displayed acceptance and spoke to her as if her guilt were in the past. Did no one accuse you? Not does anyone accuse you. He spoke to her as if her guilt were in the past. Did no one condemn you better? Did no one judge you? 
A fifteenth time Jesus displayed grace. While still in a public place, he spoke to a woman and conveyed on her dignity, human worth. A sixteenth time, Jesus extended grace to her in that he offered her time to consider her own sin and to confess it. Neither do I condemn you. Better, neither do I declare you guilty. Yes, it is a different word than he used for her accusers. But it is about condemnation, and he didn't do it. He recognized God, even though he was God and had every right to, to condemn, to judge, to exact vengeance. He didn't do it. Seventeenth time Jesus exhibited grace, he gave her the opportunity to repent of her sin. This is different than the scribes and Pharisees. He gave them the opportunity to confess their sin and to evaluate themselves. He gave her the opportunity to turn from her sin. He even encouraged it. He said, go. And in 18th time Jesus expressed grace in this interchange, he extended an invitation to her to be transformed. From now on, sin no more. Literally, go and be not sinning. Okay. I mean, that's a that's an interesting story. Those are all awesome things to consider about even when we have interchanges on that level with someone who's obviously guilty, maybe even like the scribes and Pharisees in God's very face, shaking their fist at God, this story is incredible because in this short time, Jesus used every opportunity to express grace to everyone there. A 19th time, if you want, even to the crowd who was watching by giving them an illustration of this is how it's done correctly. A 20th time. If you're watching, maybe you should be thinking about yourself too. A 21st time. If you're watching, why don't you follow her and go and be not sinning? How many times did Jesus express grace here? I don't know. I'm sure I can't count them all. Because there were cultural things going on. Each person had his own perspective. Each person had his own baggage. Each person had his own understanding of himself, his own understanding of what God expects. Just there's so many ways Jesus expressed grace here. So what? As Pastor Alex always says, so what? Um, You know what? I think we've probably seen ourselves here, haven't we? I'm just assuming that we have. Actually, I've been hoping and praying that we would, and I just trust God to answer those prayers. And I trust also that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. So we have had this opportunity to see ourselves, to identify, whoa, I need to confess. Whoa, I need to repent. I've really been pressed into the world's mold on this kind of thing. I need to break free. I need to be set free. I need to be transformed. I need to be renewed. I need to be restored. I need God's grace. The theological perspective on it, right? I need God's grace. Otherwise, I can't be what God wants me to be. If I don't have God's grace working in me in that way, how can I, being who I am, judgmental, not accepting, not loving, ever communicate the gospel to those who are lost. How can I 
who am so hopeless myself, ever, ever restore hope to anyone else. See, go back to the beginning. Our responsibility is not to understand the causes of our own brokenness, of our own broken heart. Our job is to bring hope to the brokenhearted. <clears throat> so what? It's pretty easy, I think. Um, I get to pass it off on Alex. <laughs> no, that's that's true because we, you know, we talked about this and, and we we went down this road together. Um, he gets to unpack next week. He gets to unpack the so what and start to give us tools that we can actually use in order to shift our focus, to shift our focus from antagonistic to winsome. He will help us begin to walk toward grace and actually extend hope. He will tell us about how the power of Jesus' resurrection not only provides the avenue for our own spiritual and physical restoration, but also provides the power necessary for us to be truly transformed into life-restoring, life-giving agents of grace who put grace on display in our own interactions with lost people and turn ourselves into people who maybe actually love the lost. It's time for communion. It's a really uncomfortable place to be right before communion. See, we are truly a people who need God's saving grace. The, the, the theological kind of spoke of. This message has illustrated that need by calling us to examine our own lives, to confess our sin and to be transformed. I urge you to consider these things for the next few minutes before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. For being mindful of these things and not dealing with them, that's a bad way to go to communion. So let's take a few minutes while Nick comes up. <clears throat>